This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education X. Thank you for joining us. Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue is scheduled to be heard by the Supreme Court sometime during the current term. When Montana's Department of Revenue said that taxpayers should not get or could not get a $150 credit for a $150 contribution that they made to foundations giving scholarships to low-income students attending religious schools. When that decision was made by the Department of Revenue in the state of Montana, Kendra Spinoza, a student who was to receive a fellowship, sued and she won in the Montana State Trial Court, but the Montana Supreme Court overturned the lower court, saying that this law authorizing $150 credit for all these donations violated the Montana Constitution, which explicitly prohibits the legislature from making, and I quote, any direct or indirect appropriation or payment from any public fund or monies to aid any school controlled in whole or in part by any church, sex, or denomination. Now, to me, that seems pretty clear. The tax credit law definitely allows taxpayers to aid schools controlled by churches because it allows the taxpayer to deduct the entire amount of the donation from their Montana state income tax. So you would think that would be directly in violation of the Montana Constitution, and that is exactly what the Montana Supreme Court decided. So why, why has the United States Supreme Court decided to take up Espinosa's case? And why has her attorney, Richard Comer, a recently retired senior counsel for the Institute of Justice, taken on the responsibility of advocating for Espinosa before the high bench? Well, to answer these questions, I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange Richard Comer, the lead attorney in the Espinosa case. Now, Richard, I know your friends called you Dick, so, so may I do that? Yes, today? please yeah. do. Okay, Dick. So isn't it obvious that the Montana legislature violated the Montana Constitution? Uh, absolutely not, because the premise of your question is that the aid is to the religious school that Kendra Espinosa was choosing for her daughters. In fact, the aid is to Kendra Espinosa. It's just incidental to the receipt of that aid that the uh, Stillwater Christian School, where she sends her daughters, is going to be receiving uh, the scholarship proceeds in payment for their services. Okay, okay, so before digging into that any further, let's get the facts of the case on the <clears throat> tables here. So ex who, who's eligible for one of these uh, scholarships that you get from a foundation? Okay, uh, anybody who is uh, sending or wants to send their child to uh, a private school in Montana. Virtually all private schools are uh, entitled to participate based upon the program's language as written by the legislature. But, but the only recipients who are eligible are those of low, from low-income households. The particular um, uh, scholarship-granting organization uh, only provides scholarships to low-income individuals, like Kendra Espinosa, who works three jobs to send her two daughters there. But presumably other foundations could arise that could give out fellowships more yes. broadly? Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. There's no uh, limitation in the program that it just happens that in a small state like uh, Montana, only one has been formed so far. But in a larger state like Arizona, which has an almost identical program, there are 50 scholarship granting organizations. So this is a little bit different than the Zellman case in Ohio where the voucher program there, which the Supreme Court found constitutional, that program was limited to disadvantaged families, families of low income. And uh, could that be an f- important fact in this case? That I don't think so, because um, it happens. And, and I think any scholarship granting organization is likely to adopt something very similar to what the one scholarship organization in uh, Montana has adopted, which is to prioritize low-income individuals before middle-income individuals. Well, could a family donate uh, some money to the foundation and then the foundation gives the money back to pay for the child's uh, tuition at, at the school the child wants to go to so that really the foundation is just a conduit for the family? No. Um, federal law, uh, federal tax law, does not permit you to um, get tax benefits uh, for the educational expenses of your own children. And so the Montana legislation does not allow any uh, scholarship-granting organization to engage in any sort of quid pro quo behavior like that. You don't need to donate anything on behalf of I mean, to a scholarship-granting organization for you to benefit from the scholarship. Um, The two acts are entirely separate. All right. So uh, just to understand, then, it is your argument that the Montana Constitution, as interpreted by the Montana Supreme Court, violates the U.S. Constitution, and that is— the case you're bringing to the Supreme Court. Yes, exactly right. right. Exactly right. So why does this provision in the Montana Constitution that prohibits aid to religious schools violate the U.S. Constitution? The fact that it prohibits aid to religious schools is not what violates the federal Constitution. Prohibiting scholarships to students whose parents choose religious schools does violate the free exercise clause, also the establishment clause and the equal protection clause. This is a program of student assistance. It is not a program of institutional assistance to religious schools. So you're saying this is a little bit like the GI Bill which the federal government uh, enacted into law and it allowed uh, veterans to go to any college, religious or secular, that they thought they would get the appropriate education they were pursuing. Yes, exactly right. It's very similar to that. It's similar to the Pell Grant program. It's similar to the Guaranteed Student Loan program. It allows for free choice by the individual recipients, the individual beneficiaries of the scholarships. They make the choice. But now that's higher education. And uh, don't we want to make a distinction between 
higher education where people's religious beliefs are already well formed and and uh, K through 12 where the process of socialization is often the process of moral and religious education and so you are sort of establishing a religion when you get involved with the in the K-12 education system. No, because we expect and hope that parents, in exercising their right to direct the education of their children, will provide for the moral and religious education of their children. And here it's the parents who are, in fact, making the decision to educate their children. Ultimately, it's no different than a parent homeschooling their child and teaching them about their religion. Here you use the, the agent of a private school to do that. Um, it's no different from how education has developed from people first educating their own kids, then hiring tutors to educate their kids, then families grouping together to hire a teacher to educate their kids. Um, in all cases like this, it's private education and it's parents educating their children. So it, the important uh, element in this program that makes it uh, constitutional in Montana and, and makes any attempt by Montana to, to uh, prohibit this activity under this uh, particular clause in the Constitution that's forbidding aid to religious institutions is the fact that this is not aid to religious institutions. This is aid to the, f to the parents or to the family or to the child, not aid to exactly. a religious institution. The GI Bill is not aid to whatever schools the veterans choose to go to. And in point of fact, when initially uh, instituted, the GI Bill uh, paid most of its benefits to, to veterans of World War II who had not even gone to high school, and it was used to educate themselves at high schools. Well, I know one of the uh, elements in the arguments that are made about this uh, provision in the Montana State Constitution is that it is tainted by the fact that it inherited that language from legislation that was enacted a hundred years ago, uh, I think uh, maybe in Montana it was 1879, you correct me if I'm wrong on the date, uh, but uh, at that time there was a very uh, anti-Catholic mood in the country and Protestants wanted children educated in public schools and not in Catholic schools because they thought that the long arm of the Pope would get in the way of American democracy, and so they really uh, ab absolutely were opposed to aid to Catholic schools, and so they, uh, they tried to uh, put amendments into the U.S. Constitution called Blaine Amendment, but after the senator from Maine. That's right. Uh, and, and, then, and then when that failed, they then put that into place in many state constitutions, and they've been forever called the Baby Blaine Amendment. So yes, or the is that State part of, Blaine Amendment. Is that part of your argument, or is that just a minor part of your, your, your argument? Well, it's important to put the language of the Montana Constitution into the correct historical context. Um, at the time the language was written in, it was 1889, the first state constitution. Oh, I was off there, 1889. Yeah. 89. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
uh, the public schools in Montana, like the public schools throughout the United States, were non-denominationally Protestant institutions. And there they had uh, Bible reading, they had school prayer, they sang Protestant hymns, they celebrated Protestant uh, holidays, um, and they had a curriculum that was rife with anti-Catholicism. Many of the early state superintendents of public education were in fact Protestant ministers, um, and the Catholics correctly recognized that the public schools were hostile to their interest and they created their own system of public schools. And the precise language, which is so important, of the Montana and other state Blaine amendments is not that they prohibit uh, aid to religious schools because the public schools were, by today's standards, religious schools. It's that language about being under the control of a sect or denomination because the Catholics were regarded as a sect or denomination. And so this was an anti-Catholic uh, enactment to rebuff Catholic efforts to a, obtain a split of the public school funding between the Protestant public schools and Catholic parochial schools. Well, one of the things that gives sort of uh, uh, makes your story credible is the uh, the campaign that uh, Senator Blaine uh, mounted for the presidency in 1884 when he uh, he, didn't, he he was on the stadium of uh, uh, he was on the platform when some Protestant minister got up and introduced him and then denounced the Democratic Party as the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, I understand the rum part because the liquor interest <laughs> was there, and I understand the rebellion part because the party, the Democrats are the party uh, of the South, but where's this Romanism <laughs> business? Is So the Catholics that were uh, increasing, an increasingly large proportion of the electorate uh, were reliably Democratic votes at that time. And that um, uh, reliability has continued to the present day, such that uh, uh, when John F. Kennedy was uh, nominated for the presidency, um, he was nominated as a Democrat, of course. And uh, he had, it's hard to believe, but just as recently as 1960, there were a lot of people who were very uncomfortable with voting for a Catholic for president. But, you know, that was then. And since then, the Montana Constitution has been substantially revised. Maybe as they've got a whole new constitution. I think it's just some of the 1970s or something like 1972. that. 1972. Yeah, 1972. So is the why is this ancient history relevant to the provision in the Constitution that's actually adopted, you know, almost 100 years later? Well, A, it explains the precise language that was used, and B, um, the language was not changed at all. Uh, in being readopted in 1972 after a number of delegates brought to the attention of the 
um, convention, the Constitutional Convention as a whole, the discriminatory origins of that. And notwithstanding knowing that it had been uh, originally adopted as an anti-Catholic measure, um, they just went ahead and readopted it, and it perpetuates to this day the anti-Catholic effects and origins of the original enactment. So how did you persuade the Supreme Court? I mean, they take so few cases, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to get on the docket of the U.S. Supreme Court. What do you think are the reasons that they decided that this case was worthy of their attention? I think because, um, A, they had uh, recently decided a case called Trinity Lutheran that involved aid to a church as an institution, uh, and that denial of that aid violated the Establishment Clause, and they left open the question of an educational program that denied uh, participation by religious people and organizations, schools, um, but more because there's a conflict in the lower courts that they need to resolve. So the First Circuit um, and the Maine and Vermont Supreme Courts have ruled that it's perfectly fine to exclude all religious schools from a student assistance program. In other words, in those states, you can only choose a secular private school. You can't choose a religious private school. Um, and a group of other circuits, principally the 10th uh, and the 6th and the 8th, that have ruled in uh, the opposite way and have said that you can't exclude religious options entirely from education programs that assist uh, families. So we've got a circuit split among the lower federal courts, and that is the principal raison d'etre for having a Supreme Court, which is to resolve those splits. Well, yes, you have to have one law throughout the United States, otherwise you're no longer the United States. And so whenever the courts seem drifting in different directions in different parts of the United States, it's up to the Supreme Court to, uh, to uh, reconcile these, these positions. And you think that that's, was your best argument that you could have made? I think to, to, to get the them. review, absolutely. Um, they looked at the information we provided them about these previous cases and, and recognized that, you know, they, we need to have one law, one standard across the United States. Well, people, the Supreme Court doesn't take cases unless they're a little bit uh, suspicious of the lower court decision. So and it takes four justices to get the case uh, on the docket. So you, you, you have to think it seems to me, at least, you have to think that you've got four, four justices that uh, are there, there to be lost, uh, but you need one more. So um, what worries you the most about the possibility that, uh, in the end, um, the, uh, the high court will not agree with the position that you're arguing? Well, you know, I think that the justices have a pretty good idea of where their colleagues stand on issues like this. And typically, you're not going to get four justices who are going to vote to grant review if they don't think there's a really good chance that they've got a fifth or even more on the court for something like this. 
And I think one of the critical things was that in Trinity Lutheran, it was a 7-2 decision with a majority of the court agreeing it was a violation of the free exercise rights of Trinity Lutheran Church to be denied a grant just to resurface their preschool playground. Now, if it's okay with seven of the justices to give institutional aid to a church under the free exercise clause pursuant to uh, a state plain amendment, um, then I think that there's a very good likelihood that they will rule in our favor on a student assistance program that doesn't even provide one iota of aid to religious schools as institutions, but only to needy families like our clients. Well, but now a couple of those seven in, in Trinity Lutheran, uh, I think sort of said, well, yeah, but this applies to uh, fixing the playground but doesn't, because that doesn't really get down to what's happening in the classrooms and the actual services yes. being provided. So m maybe you don't quite have seven. No. Uh, and, but I think that based on the Supreme Court's uh, critical decision under the Establishment Clause saying that it is permissible to provide religiously neutral aid to students and their families and let them choose what schools to attend. That's Zellman versus Simmons-Harris from back in 2002. I think that there's every reason to believe that they will recognize that distinction and recognize this is an easier case than Trinity Lutheran was because in Zellman, they recognized that the free and independent choice that parents make breaks any linkage between government aid and religious schools. It simply empowers parents like Kendra Espinoza to choose the best possible education by their likes for their own children. And that is perfectly consistent with the federal religion clauses and with the Equal Protection Clause. So all that is convincing, and, and, and I would be perfectly, uh, you know, feel good going home that this is cut and dried, except for the fact that there is the Locke v. Davy case out there where it was student aid and it was going to somebody who was going to study for the uh, ministry, uh, was going was in a theological program and was going to become a minister. And the Supreme Court actually said you couldn't give financial aid to that student for that purpose. So how do you distinguish this case from, well, first, from that? Well, um, first, let's clarify that the Supreme Court said that it would be perfectly acceptable under the federal religion clauses to have provided the merit-based scholarship to Joshua Davey, who had declared a theology major. So there was no question that it comported with the federal constitution. But what they said was that the Washington constitution involved a stricter separation of church and state standard, and they approved the denial of his uh, scholarship 
because he was using it for vocational training for the ministry. They said there was a historic interest in preventing uh, state aid for ministers. Well, in saying that, they specifically rejected the idea that they were approving broad-based, whole-scale uh, denials of aid for any sort of religious use. Um, they emphasized how narrow the exception they were granting was and how much uh, religion could benefit from the program uh, as interpreted by the Washington Supreme Court. So they specifically said it was that that students could take religion classes at pervasively religious universities like where Joshua Davy was, and that the only thing that they couldn't do was use it for training for the ministry. And this program in Montana, because it's K-12, does not involve training for the ministry. And yet what Montana has done is exclude all religious options and all religious participation in the program, and that violates our clients' free exercise rights, the rights to, to be free from hostility to religion under the Establishment Clause, and the right to be not discriminated against on the basis of their religion. So if they broadened out at Lockheed uh, Davy, uh, you would have... Uh, the Pell Grants might be in jeopardy, all kinds of aid to hire uh, students in higher education. Absolutely, yeah. because um, just because uh, in, in Locke v. Davey it was a state constitutional provision, the First Circuit um, in uh, uh, New England has excluded religious schools in toto, as have the Maine and Vermont Supreme Courts from these programs. Um, and I don't think that's justified under Locke v. Davey, and I think it's prohibited uh, under Trinity Lutheran. So, you know, one of the things about uh, the uh, establishment of religion clause and the free exercise clause as interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court is that it's had a lot of trouble building a straight wall yes. of separation between church and state. It gets to be pretty serpentine, like the, the wall down there at uh, the, the, I think the college you, you uh, <laughs> uh, went to, the uh, University of Virginia at one point. And so, uh, yeah, so the serpentine wall uh, may just be... Um, examined again very carefully by a divided court. I think that's right. Um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, its religious jurisprudence evolves, and it's been evolving for decades now, ever since it was first, it first applied the uh, federal religion clauses to the state in Everson in 1947. Um, but it's become increasingly clear through that time that the cases have one standard for aid to religious institutions as institutions and an entirely different and distinct standard for student aid programs. 
um, such as was involved in the Zellman case um, and in the Lockby Davy case and in our case. And I think that uh, if they continue to recognize, as they should, that this case is in fact a student assistance case and that the, uh, the linkage between government and the aid and religion is broken by free and independent choice by parents, um, that there is no violation of the separation of wall of church and state. And I think Madison would agree. And as we know, he's the author of uh, the father of the Constitution and certainly the original author of the First Amendment. Well, thank you. Uh, I wish you well as you argue this case thank you. before the Supreme Court. Uh, I have been speaking with Richard Comer, former senior uh, counsel at the Institute of Justice and the lead attorney for Kendra Espinoza, whose case against the Montana Department of Revenue will be heard by the Supreme Court this term. Thank you, Dick, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.